May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. This is the chorus or the refrain of each verse that we just sang for our sermon hymn. And they refer, of course, to Jesus' famous illustration that he uses about the wise man and the foolish man. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says that the foolish man builds his house upon the sand. And when the rains come and they beat against it, the house is washed away. But the wise man builds his house upon the rock. And when the rains come and beat against it, it stands firm. And this hymn, which was belted out at one of the worship services at Gafcon in Jerusalem was actually the impetus for this sermon when I started preparing for it a couple of weeks ago when I was over there. And I told Donna when I came back that we needed to sing it for our sermon hymn today. Those words, On Christ the solid rock I stand, reminded me of the very psalm that we said this morning, that of Psalm 40. And this morning, I just want to touch on the theme and the opening thought of David in verse 2 of that psalm. But before I dive into it, I do want to make just a few remarks about David who penned that psalm. Sometimes as I read through the psalms, I think that King David would have been diagnosed with some type of bipolar disorder in today's world. He had extreme highs. And he had extreme lows. One minute he's uppity up, and the next minute he's lower than low. He's encouraged, and then he's discouraged. Thank you, God. You're so awesome. We are so awesome in your sight. You've done so much, he says. And then the next minute, oh my God, my enemies triumph over me. I'm like a worm. I can't do anything good. I actually think it's not that David is manic. It's that David was a very passionate man. He had a heart that truly desired God, but David was also one who acted out of human passion and emotion without always giving much logical thought to things that he did. For example, what person goes into battle against a nine-foot giant who wears armor and carries a big sword while you yourself are a small shepherd who doesn't have any armor or weapon but that of a slingshot. I mean, who does that? Yet David doesn't give logical thought to what he was doing. Logic would say, "Uh, no, Goliath wins today. We live to fight another day in another way. Anybody with any sense would say that. But David acts out of his heightened passion of faith. God will do it. And swoosh, down goes the giant. And that's a great example of a good thing from David. In the same way that Caleb and Joshua wanted to go into Canaan when the other ten spies said, no, we can't do it. But it's this same mighty David who slays Goliath, who then turns and runs away from his problems multiple times. He runs and hides from King Saul. He goes and he lives in caves in the sides of the mountains to hide out. David runs away from his own son, Absalom, when Absalom came and seized the throne from his father. Believe it or not, David even acts like a crazy, rabid dog to save his life in Philistine. 
1 Samuel 21 verse 13 says, So David changed his behavior before them. He pretended madness in their hands. He scratched on the doors of the gates and he let saliva fall down from his beard, acting like a crazy man. Now where's the great faith of the giant slayer here? Or what about the manly passions of his loins? Here was this man from God, or this man whom God had raised up from the lowly hills of Bethlehem. He was a fair-headed, short, handsomely-looking shepherd, and God made him a mighty leader in battle for Israel. Tens of thousands of enemies are slain at his command. At least that's what the people would sing about David. And God brought him to a great throne in kingship in Israel. He could have had many wives. Could have had many concubines. After all, his son Solomon did that. Yet, this same man saw the one pretty woman, Bathsheba. There she was, naked and bathing on a rooftop across the way, not even aware that the king of all of Israel was looking at her. And the inner passions took hold of David. And even though he was married, even though her husband was out fighting on behalf of David and the nation, David's passion was such that but for a moment of earthly pleasure, but for a moment of earthly pleasure, he turns his back on God, turns his back on his fellow man, turns his back on his nation, and fulfills his lust with her. He sends his men to go and get her, and then he enjoys her. And this understanding is heightened even more as we think about David in his old age. As David gets older, towards his death, his spirit becomes downcast. And in order to try and cheer him up, do you know what his men try to do? They try to send in women to lift his spirits. Now what does that say about their perception of King David? It says, appeal to his fleshly desires, and that will get him cheered up. David was a passionate man, and his spirit was moved up and down all through his life, proclaiming praise, dancing naked in the streets, enjoying fleshly satisfactions, slaying enemies, yet hiding in caves, giving into sin, cowering in fear. But amidst all of this, David is acutely aware of the one stabilizing thing in life, and that was God. Only one time did David ever forget God. And actually, it wasn't that he forgot God. It's that he didn't really want to acknowledge God because he was trying to avoid that sin that he had committed of adultery. But all other times, up or down, David still remembered God, and God was the one constant in his life. And that's what we find in our psalm today, Psalm 40. David had just come through a low, and he's looking back upon God's faithfulness through it, and he pens these words. And if you had the psalm in front of you, which can be found on page 5 in your uh, worship bulletin this morning, then look at verse 2 with me. This verse gives the backdrop and explains where David was when he wrote this. Psalm 40, verse 2. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. Obviously, this is a metaphor. Some translations substitute the word quickstand instead of mire and clay, which helps convey an imagery for us. 
One writer suggested, and I paraphrase and I add to his words, that David was down and bogged. And he had the feeling that the more he tried and struggled to get out of his situation, the more stuck he became, just like quicksand. I mean, can you imagine it? He's hopeless. He's stuck. He's trying and trying to figure out how in the world he is going to get out of whatever situation he is in. And we don't know the situation because we're not told. But we know it's not good. And he has nothing sturdy with which to steady himself. And if you look at verse 1, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord. So this must have gone on for some considerable time. I mean, this wasn't like on Monday he was having a bad day, and then he woke up on Tuesday and everything else was good. It wasn't like, oh, I've had a bad week, my boss has been on my case, I've had too many deadlines that I just can't meet. This may have been weeks, or months, or perhaps years of despair. We don't know. But it was long enough, and it was bad enough to suffocate and squeeze his soul as he sank in the quicksand. He had the feeling of God being far off, of having deep fears about the future. And we know that same kind of feeling, don't we? We can relate to that, can't we? When we're struggling with our fears of security and stability, when we wonder how in the world we're going to keep our heads above water when, you know, those debts, they keep mounting. When our employment has us on a tightrope, tight rope, not knowing if we'll have a job or whether we'll lose it and have everything else in our life come tumbling down around it. When our marriages and relationships just aren't going the way we thought they would. Or even worse, when our sin consumes us. When we stand on the sinking ground of the bad choices that we have made in life. And sometimes these go on and on and on, don't they? Seemingly no hope for the future, seemingly no solution in sight, seemingly no sense of control that will allow us to feel secure. Yet David says what the Lord did. Look again at verse 2. In the process of describing his personal situation, he's ultimately describing God's work. What does David describe in verse 2? God lifted him out of the dangerous or the horrible pit. God lifted him out of the mire. God set him on a rock. And God gave him a secure footing, which is the imagery of ordering his goings. And friends, notice the emphasis David makes is on the work of God. I spend some time speaking about the situation. David is really focusing on God's work and not the situation. David was helpless, and God, and God only, is the one who could work this marvelous work. David uses an imagery here that I think we can all easily picture. I don't know about you, but growing up near the Appalachian Mountains, it's easy for me to picture a a big slated rock. A huge and big rock jutting out from the base of a mountainside nearby to a wet and sinking ground from where perhaps storm waters have recently flowed and flooded nearby. And as David is suddenly trapped in the muddy waters, about to sink or to be swept away into the muddy pit below, God shows up and God stands upon the rock and God reaches out with his mighty hand and he grabs hold of David's hand. 
and he pulls David to safety onto that rock. And I can continue to picture the imagery of David as he stands there with the the residue of the mud and the quicksand still dripping from his body with the evidence of his past situation. And David now rejoices with great glee. And he hugs God and he cries in happiness. And he thanks God profusely for doing something that he himself couldn't do. David was now safe. David was now protected. David was saved. He stood firm upon that rock of God. Now, having hopefully painted that picture in your mind, might I suggest that in a prophetic way, David knew and expressed in these words the greater and true rock, the rock of ages that would come from his own lineage. David, although in a real situation of his own a thousand years earlier when he wrote this, knew of the greater and graver situation of all mankind in sin and the true and only rock upon which all men can stand and be saved. And you know of whom I speak, because I speak of Jesus Christ. As one song sings from the words of Psalm 18, The Lord liveth, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be the rock of my salvation. Think of that imagery. Jesus Christ is our rock. He's our point of safety and security. He's our deliverer upon whom we can stand. As we sang in our opening hymn, he's the one foundation, the chief cornerstone, the securing rock of the entire church. He's the rock of Israel from whom cometh the life-sustaining waters. And beloved, there is no other stable rock upon which we can stand. We might think that there might be other ground. We might think that having more money would stabilize our life. Just a little bit more money, we say, and everything would be fine. We may think that a new relationship might stabilize our life. If I could just get out of this relationship or change, we may say, and my life would, well, it'd be all smooth. Or we might think that a new job might stabilize our life. Things like that. And sometimes those things are nice. Sometimes those things are helpful. Sometimes God orders our paths such that we can be blessed by those things. But ultimately, any temporal rock is not the same as our eternal rock. Like Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and rust corrupt and, uh, and rust, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. He isn't speaking only of possessions and money here, but the difference between a temporal focus of security and our eternal rock of salvation. And that's the key for us this morning. That's our focus. That's our reassurance. We have that true rock upon whom we have been firmly placed. That as we sometimes sink in our situations, that as we seem to have those wild ups and downs as David did, that as we're driven by our passions at times like David was, we have that steady, unchanging, the immovable rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. As we close this morning, I want to come back again to our sermon hymn, which so eloquently says it all. And permit me to reread those words of the hymn to you again. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean 
on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found. In him my righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Friends, that's the song David sang in Psalm 40, in Psalm 18, in Psalm 28, and in so many other places. But that's also the song we sing and we remember as we move day to day. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Amen.